Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast podcast. Our special guest today is the awesome Mike Tabor, founder of Bluetick.io and the famous co-host of Startups for the Rest of Us and MicroConf, and probably he doesn't really need that introduction. And we're going to talk about ethical cold email today. This episode is brought to you by Light Matter. Have you ever wondered how top companies ship new features so quickly? Or have you ever struggled to get that awesome UX and UI you were going for? That's where Light Matter comes in. They act as direct extension of design and development teams at some of the world's top companies. Whether your company needs a new brand, website, or app, they can help. Check them out at lightmatter.com slash breakfast to learn more. Hey, Mike. Hi, Jane. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, excellent. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, in case there are folks out there not from our ecosystem, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, your story, your background story, and uh, how you ended up running Bluetick. I started a long time ago. So I started my own business back in 2005, and I mainly did consulting for several years. And then I kind of switched over and started doing software, trying to focus a lot more on that. I co-founded MicroConf with Rob Walling, also Startups for Recipes podcast, and also the Founder Cafe community. And then separately from that, I was also running a product called Audit Shark, which did not work out very well. But through the process of building Audit Shark, I also ran into a lot of issues trying to do email follow-ups. And I looked around at the tools that were out there and I really couldn't find something that fit me. And so I ended up, after I ended up shutting down Audit Shark, I switched over and said, well, I couldn't find a product that suited the needs that I had. So let me see if there's other people who have this need as well. And went out and pre-sold Bluetick to the tune of around $2,000 in pre-orders before I even started writing any code. And then Bluetick kind of came out of that. And I've been working on that for the past uh, couple of years or so. And really, the, the tool itself is automated email follow-up system. So when you email somebody, if they don't respond, it'll follow up with them at certain times of the day or days of the week. You know, the same basic types of things that other follow-up tools do. The main difference, I think, is that with Bluetick, it doesn't matter what your underlying email provider is. A lot of the problems that I found with the other ones is, one, their reply detection didn't work very well. And two, they were tended to be Gmail only. So I needed something that would work not just on Gmail, but other things as well. And, you know, as I said, the reply detection I found to be a little bit lacking for some of the other tools. What were the primary challenges as you've started and grown that business up to date? You know, there's a couple of them. And I think that one of them is probably going to resonate a lot with uh, many of the people who are self-funded or bootstrapped. And the problem that I've run into is that technology changes so rapidly and so quickly that it's sometimes very, very difficult to keep up. Just like, you know, the the sheer number of libraries that you start integrating into a product and how quickly they update and change. And you want to make sure that your product is still working after you update the latest versions because you don't want to write all that code yourself. I mean, there could be, you know, tens of thousands of lines of code behind one particular library. And because those things change so often, you have to keep the library up to date in your code. And your product needs to 
function properly for your customers. So you don't always want to upgrade to the latest version. You want to make sure that everything still works. And that can be difficult once you get up above a handful of libraries. And I think that most bootstrapped entrepreneurs these days are running into those types of challenges where they have so many libraries that it's just hard to make sure that all of them are up to date and everything is still working and that you're continuing to provide for your existing customers. Meanwhile, you're trying to, I'll say, fight against competitors that are kind of coming out of the woodwork to offer the same types of products that you are because you know there's only so many products ideas that are out there and once people see what other people are building they tend to emulate it and it's just it's very hard to keep up especially if you're like a one or two person startup have you experienced like fierce competition in the email industry or do you think this plays for the good for all participants of the market I would say a little of both. There, so in, in email, there, I have a list of about 25 to 30 different competitors that I've tracked. And when I first started... Wow, that's pretty exhausting. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And don't get me wrong. Some of them are things that I would probably throw away. Like you could probably say, oh, this competes with pretty much everything. Like one of them, people use Excel spreadsheets or Google Sheets. I kind of lump those together as a quote unquote competitor. But I also have to understand why people use that versus why they choose to use that versus using an actual tool. And a lot of times that comes down to cost. So if you're competing against a spreadsheet, typically the reason the person is not buying is a function of cost, or they're just not educated about the fact that there are other things in the market that could solve the problem for them, which is a completely different problem that you as a marketer have to address. Awesome. This year, you had pretty hard period in your in your software journey where you were deciding whether you'd like to throw in the towel or double down on Bluetech. And you've shared a lot of that on Startups for the Rest of Us, and we're going to link to those episodes in the show notes, of course. But for our listeners, could you give a recap of what's been going on and what's going on right now? Sure. The fundamental problem that I ran into was when I was originally building Bluetech, as I said earlier in the episode, I ran into a problem where it needed to support more than just Gmail. So I created an app that would directly integrate through IMAP to just read email boxes directly so that I didn't have to use any APIs or anything like that. And Gmail has an API, but I chose specifically not to use it because I didn't want to put myself or the business in a position where Gmail or Google had any sort of control over my business. Fast forward a couple of years and they come out with data privacy regulations that essentially say if you're integrating into anything that Google provides in a certain way and you are using these what they call authentication scopes, basically your your level of access into the data, then you have to go through a third-party security audit. And unfortunately, I fell into that. And their cost estimate for that was anywhere from fifteen dollars to $75,000 for the third-party audit. And that's just to stay in business. Whoa. And it's uh, it has to be done on an annual basis. So the problem I had was, do I pay for this or do I just kind of say, you know what, I'm done and just shut the whole thing down? <laughs> and what did you choose? Uh, well, obviously, I, I mean, I'm here. So I chose to go down that path and pay the money, get the security audit done. I've gone through the audit. Everything passed. I gave them all the information, had to provide a bunch of documentation, which, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where you have to do something just to check off a checkbox more than, you know, anything else. It doesn't mean a whole lot in some cases, but at the same time, Google required that. And so I had to go through that. I was surprised when I was talking to them and they said, oh, well, you know, some companies come back and they have anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20 or 30 different major issues that need to be fixed. And because of the expense of it, 
you know, you only got so much time to go back and forth with them. They came back to me and said, oh, you've got to fix these things in your documentation. And there's this one thing that you have to change how you're doing it. And that was literally it. So, you know, I have mixed feelings on it. I'm glad to know that they didn't find any major security holes. But on the other side of it, like I paid a lot of money for this security audit to tell me that nothing was wrong. So it's a tough position to be in mentally. Big congratulations on overcoming this huge roadblock in your journey. How does it feel now? You know, like I said, I still have mixed feelings about it. I'm a little upset that they didn't find more, but at the same time, it's a good thing. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still kind of struggling. Being done with, with it. Yes, I am done with it. So. So we've got here together to discuss the topic of cold email. And I think in addition to the technical roadblocks, like the one above, one of the problems that you've mentioned before was this sort of uh, not lack of founder slash uh, product fit, but something along those lines, because cold email, email outreach follow up has so many shady sides to it, and you don't really want to be catering to that. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the big fears that I had when I was building Blue Tech, and it didn't start until after I'd built it and started onboarding people was that I'd originally aimed it at people who were doing what I would refer to as warm email follow-ups as opposed to cold email follow-ups. And we'll talk about a little bit about the difference between them. But when I was trying to work with customers for Audit Shark, it was all people that I either knew or had previously had contact with. I wasn't really doing a lot of cold outreach because I knew that for that particular audience of IT directors and IT managers, it simply did not work. Those people got lots of people talking to them. And typically, they would work through sales reps that would come into the organization just because of the level that I was trying to sell at. So cold email for that, it just didn't work at all. And so I was going after leads where I had a relationship with them or there was introductions. And what I found was that even after having those things in place, it still took numerous email follow-ups for me to get in touch with them and have them respond just because they had so much incoming communication that it wasn't really their highest priority for the day. So I started going through that process of doing the follow-ups and I was tracking everything through a spreadsheet and it was it was just awful. I mean, after you get up above like four, like you can do things like use Boomerang after, but after three or four back and forths, it becomes really emotionally painful to do those follow-ups. And if you have five or 10 or 50 of them that you're trying to do at, at the same time, just sitting down at your mailbox is emotionally draining. You do not want to send those emails. You don't want to go look up and say, well, is this the second email or the third email? Which email template did I use? Which one should I use? What should I say to this person? And the problem I found with something like Boomerang was that it would tell you that you needed to send the email, but it wouldn't actually do it for you. So that's part of where BlueTech came from, was, was being able to create those automated sequences that would do the outreach to people that I knew. But as you said, you know, people started using it for cold email. And cold email is where it gets dicey, where I'm like, I really don't want to be building a great tool that works well for people who are going to use it for, I'll, I'll say, use it for evil. <laughs> and, and by evil, I really mean sending bad cold email. It's not that I have a particular thing against cold email. It's that I see a lot of bad cold email. And if you just kind of glance at an email, you can typically tell whether or not it's a good cold email or bad cold email. Just with the glancing, you don't even have to actually read the text. I could flash several of them in front of you and you would be able to pick out the ones that are bad versus the ones that are good. As a podcast host with my email out there, I can relate to every single word you're saying, basically. So you mentioned the difference between cold and warm email. For people who are not much into that, could you tell us what the difference is and how it works? 
So the way I typically define it is cold email is an email that you send to somebody who has never heard of you before. Or if they have, it is not you know through something that they have act- actively done. Let's say, for example, that I'm running... Uh, you know, I'll I'll pick on Oracle here for a second, but let's say you're you're running Oracle, and somebody comes to your website and they download something. They have essentially reached out to you. You've probably gotten their email address through that. And if you turn around and you respond to them, that's more of a warm email. But if you're running, let's say, an agency and you're trying to find people to market to or to get in touch with or have sales conversations with, and you start trolling through LinkedIn and extracting either email addresses or names and company names, go to their website, you pull down their email address. They did not reach out to you. They did not actively look for you. You sought them out and you're actively sending them emails. That's how I differentiate between cold versus warm email. With cold, they didn't actively reach out to you versus warm where like they may have expressed some interest or you you crossed their path in some way, shape or form before. And then you're following up with them. Where does this boundary actually lie? Because some some of the cold emailers, they would think that just them following you on Twitter is like the basics for <laughs> literally starting to email me for something. So where does this legal ground lie for being warm or cold? Good question, because it's hard to answer. I mean, there is a gray area where if you followed somebody on social media, for example, does that mean that you're interested? And, you know, that that I would say is absolutely a gray area. But if you went to an agency's website or a SaaS company's website and you downloaded a white paper or signed up for their news for their mailing list or their newsletter, that to me is much more of a warm email if that company were to reach back to you versus cold. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes total sense. I wonder, as an IT professional, have you ever done truly cold email in your life? And how did it make you feel? Because I have, and I clearly remember being very miserable. Yes, I have done it before. And I, I'm i not a huge fan. There are some people who are just like, whatever, I don't care. And I get that. I totally understand and empathize with that mentality. And, it, you know, my response to that is like, there's nothing inherently wrong with cold email, but make sure that you're not just blasting out to every email address you find and are being irrelevant. And that's where I kind of draw the line between ethical and unethical cold emails, where if you don't even know anything about the person and you're sending them an email, it's really hard to get a conversation going. It's really hard to get them interested in anything that you have to say because you don't even know like a starting point for the conversation. So that's why I feel like warm email is easier for me personally, but like but the statistics and stuff that I have through running blue tick and looking at different people's accounts, warm email works dramatically better than cold email. So if you've ever had any kind of interaction with somebody, your response rates are going to be dramatically higher than they are if you're doing cold email. Let's go over the basic rules of sending an effective outreach email, be it uh, cold or semi-warm or whatsoever. I'm sure the rules are pretty much similar. Yeah, they are. I don't know as there's a whole lot of difference between them in terms of how you treat the person. And my my general rule that I kind of espouse to people is that, you know, treat somebody on the other end of the email as you would want to be treated. Like whatever email addresses you have, those are real people on the other side. It's not just some, you know, entry in a spreadsheet or in a database. I mean, that's a real person who's checking that email and you want them to respond. So treat them like a real person, not just an email address. And a lot of what goes with that is, you know, talking to them as they're a real person, you know, don't just like send sales pitches, for example, like that's generally the worst place to to start. And every single bad cold email I've ever seen starts right there. It just says like, hey, would you like to buy X? 
and you know, there's different schools of thought on that. The one is that like you want to get to a yes or no answer very, very quickly, but at the same time, there's no trust. So if there's no trust, why are they going to react to a sales pitch that you've got, uh, you know, immediately, unless it's such a burning pain point? And if it is a burning pain point, why haven't they looked for a solution yet? How about the recommended length of the email or calls to action that you could potentially provide in the end? So this depends on what stage of your, I'll call it your sales funnel or your customer lifecycle they are. If they are a prospect, for example, they've downloaded something from your website or, you know, maybe they sent in a support email and asked a question. Uh, those are the types of things where you probably want to keep things short and make a single call to action, which is typically you just want a response like, hey, I have a question about this. Did everything go well? whether it was a support ticket or did we answer your question? You know, can I help you get your account set up? Those types of things. You know, getting your account set up probably happens a little bit later in the, the life cycle. But depending on how far down in the life cycle of the customer you are, whether they are a prospect or whether they've uh, just signed up for your product or they're, they're talking about signing up and they're asking a bunch of questions after they've signed up, after they've been onboarded, after they've been a customer for six months or 12 months, your length can get greater as you get further in, but it also is very contextual about like what it is that you're asking for and why and how important it is to them. What's in it for them? I mean, that's, that's actually the biggest thing that you have to keep in mind is what's in it for them to keep reading this email and then to do whatever it is that you're asking them to do. One of my favorite things to think about is finding the balance. So one is uh, providing as much information as necessary for them to evaluate whether this is interesting for them at all. And the other is like keeping that short so that you can really get their sign off before sending off that calendar link. This calendar link things really, really get me mad when somebody says like, oh, grab a time on my calendar. Let's talk. Well, that's not a great pitch for the first email, right? You know, it depends. Like I said, that really depends on what your re your current relationship with them is. Like for a cold email, I would probably not do that because there's no trust. Why would I get on a call with some random person that I've never heard of before? I've never seen their domain name before. And I just get some email in my mailbox that just says, hey, let's schedule a call and talk about your you know financing needs for your business. No, like I, there's no way I'm going to respond to that email. It's just not possible. Like there's there's no chance whatsoever. But if I'm having that particular problem or if I'm I've signed up for a couple of different things and then I went on Twitter and I complained like, hey, I can't find any software that does X, Y and Z. Why does this have such a problem? And if you're a competitor of whatever product it is that they're complaining about, you have a really good chance of getting in their mailbox and say, hey, you know, I'd like to talk to you about this and see what problems you're having because I'm trying to build something that does X, Y and Z. And it's exactly the problem you're having your chances there of getting a response are way, way higher than if you email some random number or random email address in a database that you just happen to have, you know, because they don't necessarily have the problem. And that's where the relevance comes in. It's like, it has to be relevant, has to be timely. And you have to be talking specifically to like what their needs are, what's in it for them. I'd like to touch a bit upon follow-ups and goal tracking because I watched your blue tick demo before we got on the call and it looks like you pay special attention in your software design to what happens with those follow-up emails. Are they shoot out automatically or do you have control over them and how that relates to whether the person clicked or not or did not click on that link and so on and so forth. Tell us more about that. 
for the listeners, to, just to give context about what the video has in it, it has a demonstration of how Bluetick works. And there's a Calendly link that is sent to somebody. And it has uh, not just tracking codes in it, but it also has URL query string parameters that get sent over to Calendly. And when the person clicks on the Calendly link, they're taken to Calendly, they open it up, select a time, and it's wired up through Zapier such that once somebody clicks the link and schedules a, t a meeting with me, then it will close the loop and tell Bluetick to stop following up with that person to try and get them to a meeting. And the reason that that's so important is because I need to know, I, I don't really care if somebody clicks on the link because sometimes they're just clicking the link to click on the link and see like what their schedule is. And then they say, oh, I don't have time right now. So I'm going to come back to this later. So I don't do anything if they click on the link. I want to know, did they schedule the meeting? And that's where I'm closing the loop inside of that email. If they also respond to the email, they reply and just say, hey, I don't have time for this, or this isn't going to be a good fit, or I've got a vacation coming up that's when the Bluetick email sequence will, will stop as well. So I have it configured to do both. Uh, you can disable the reply detection, say, hey, I don't care about replies, just go ahead and send this next email. I tend to not recommend that, but there's also the ability inside of Bluetick to, instead of sending each individual email, it can create a task for you to approve. So let's say your call to action is a phone call or something like that. It's like, hey, do you have time you know, uh, can I give you a, a call this afternoon or give me a call this afternoon or, you know, next week or whatever. If you provide phone numbers for them to call you and that's your call to action, reply detection does nothing for you because you're not going to like Blue Tech has no way of knowing that somebody called you. So in those cases, you would want to have a task created for you to manually approve each email that goes out as opposed to having them automatically go because you don't want to have somebody call you and then have Bluetick send an email that says, hey, I haven't heard from you. Let's let's see if we can connect later this week. It just doesn't work. It doesn't look natural. And that's the whole point of Bluetick is to make those interactions look completely natural. Totally resonate with me because I often get responses to emails that I have responded to. And that's my real, real pet peeve. So I took time because I'm a silly girl. I usually take time to respond to even very silly emails because I think this is an opportunity to establish yourself as a human somewhere in their world of cold email and maybe not nasty responses or something like that. But yeah, something like that, like automatic follow-up without proper tracking is really bad. <laughs> it is. And, and that's part of why I put the uh, ability in there to manually approve each of the emails as opposed to having them automatically go out. Because sometimes you can just scan through the emails that are about to be sent and say, oh, I already heard from that person. And I heard from that person. And a lot of the reasons why you'll find that like the reply detection doesn't work is sometimes mail servers will do screwy things with email headers. And like every product works differently. So even with Bluetick, for the reason I built it wasn't because it didn't work. It was because people wanted to know that they could trust the results, that they could trust that Bluetick was going to send emails out. And just being able to say, I'm going to approve these things as opposed to having them automatically go out. That was a huge piece of feedback that I got that said, hey, this is important to us because I've tried all these other things and they don't necessarily always work. And I want to be sure that this is working properly. But I have a lot of customers who start off that way. And then they just say, you know what, this is working great. Let's just automate that stuff and just flip it over to automatically sending instead of, you know, manually approving each one. But most of the time, what I find is that when people say that the reply detection doesn't work in other products, it's usually because people are replying from different email addresses, not because the product itself doesn't work. As a provider of a tool, what 
can you do to ensure that your tool is used properly and in an ethical way? And I'm sure this question does not only relate to cold email, but also to any other SaaS founders who are listening to us who want to make sure their product is used in the appropriate way. What could you do? What have you brainstormed and came up with? That's a hard question to answer. I mean, I can answer specifically for Blue Tick, but I think there's also probably some general advice as well. Early on when you're building the product and onboarding customers, you want to understand what it is that they're using the product for. So if you can talk directly to each individual customer, then that's obviously something that you should do. I send out onboarding emails to people and invite them to book an onboarding call. And I offer that for free to everybody who signs up. And I find that it helps me to not only understand what it is that they're using the product before, but what sorts of things that they wanted to do or what things that they do and don't care about. And those pieces have helped kind of with the, the product roadmap itself. But just hearing them say in their own words with their voice and the voice intonations is a lot more powerful than seeing an, an email that says exactly the same thing, because you don't always get the subtleties of, of what is and isn't important to them. And I've had customers say, well, can you do this? And if they were asked me through an email, I might have to say, no, it doesn't do that, but you can do this, this, and this. But with a conversation, you can say, well, is that important to you? And sometimes they'll just say, no, I was just wondering. And that's the, honestly, like that actually got me early on where there were like, somebody was asking me about something and I forget exactly what it was, but they asked me about some feature that I didn't have, but I wanted to put in, but it was a huge, huge, like a, a major piece to put in. It would have taken a long time. I said, well, that is, is that important to you? Cause I want to know, do I have to implement this before that person will sign up? And they said, no, I was just wondering. I was like, well, I'm not going to put it in if you don't need it. So, you know, those are the types of things that I would say to, to keep in mind. But it's hard to know what things you, what roadblocks you should put in place to make certain features or functionality more difficult for people to make sure that they're serious about it. One thing that comes to mind, like most email service providers, and I'm talking about like newsletter providers, their big issue is spam. They want to make sure that you're not, you know, spamming out large numbers of people, you know, so they do like bounce free protection, uh, look at running blacklists, things like that. With Bluetick, these emails are going out through your own mail server. So in a way, if you're spamming a bunch of people, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. And a lot of the competitors to Bluetick do the exact same thing. You're sending out through your own email service provider. So it's because it's from your personal mailbox, you can impact the deliverability of all of your other emails as well. Um, so I would say I probably don't have that nearly as much. What I do run into is that I want to make sure that my customers aren't inadvertently screwing things up and hurting themselves by virtue of sending emails that they didn't mean to send. So when you create a new email sequence, for example, everything is paused. You add new steps to an email sequence, everything is paused. You add a new contact into the email sequence, it, it gets buffered at the very beginning. It doesn't automatically send those emails out right away. You usually have about a day to, to deal with that. So there's all these safety precautions that are built in for the sole reason of making sure that the customer doesn't shoot themselves in the foot. And in the meantime, I can try and get them on an onboarding call and explain like, hey, look, this is exactly how this works because I don't necessarily trust all of them to ask the right questions or to know what questions to ask. It's really hard to educate somebody about how to use your product when you don't know what their base level of understanding of the product is. These are great tips. Thank you so much for sharing. As we're wrapping up today's episode, where can people find you and your product online? Where can they learn more? 
Sure. So they can find the product over at bluetick.io. I'm on Twitter at single founder. If you come over to bluetick and you check it out, if you're interested, just drop me an email to support at bluetick.io after you sign up and I will send you a, a special bonus for signing up for listening to it and hearing about it here. That's awesome. Thanks so much. Well, thanks again. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. All right. Thank you very much.